This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. The podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith and as always, I will be your host. We got a good one for you this week. We have episode 249 entitled The Messiah in Psalm 45. So early Christians were drawing upon passages from the Old Testament, what scholars call the Hebrew Bible, in order to see how these passages would shape the role and the identity and the job description of Israel's Messiah. And of course, when we're talking about the Messiah, we always have to look at how the Messiah relates to the God of Israel, and in what ways the one who is anointed is naturally distinguished from the one who anoints. So in this week's episode, we'll look at Psalm 45 and draw upon the various ways in which it has influenced the writers of the New Testament, particularly the Gospel of John and the Book of Hebrews. Here are some of the questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, what sort of psalm is Psalm 45, and why does that really matter? Second, in what ways does the author of the Gospel of John draw upon Psalm 45 in its portrayal of Jesus? You might be surprised at the answer. And lastly, what value does the author of the book of Hebrews give to the royal human king in Psalm 45, who is actually called God? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is a closer look at Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is a medium-length psalm, 17 verses. Let's just go through and read through this and I'll offer some comments on the parts that are quite noteworthy. So we begin by seeing in verse 1 that it is a song of love. And the psalmist says, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. So right from the start, we can see that Psalm 45 is a love song directed towards the king, and this is towards the human king, the king of Israel. This is not directed towards Yahweh in the sense that Yahweh functions as a king. This is a psalm within the Bible that is sung towards a human being. So yes, it is appropriate to sing songs of worship towards qualified human individuals. And of course, the king is someone who is quite worthy of this. Let's move on. Verse 2. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. We can clearly see here in verse 2 that this king is someone who is distinguished from God. God is the one who has blessed this particular king. And we're going to see throughout the psalm the many ways in which God has blessed this human monarch. Verse 3, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. 
Now, these descriptions here, the fact that the king is someone who is called mighty, and the fact that he has splendor and majesty, those are descriptions that are typically reserved for Yahweh, for the God of Israel. But because God has blessed this king, we can see that God has empowered this particular king to share in God's attributes and to be empowered to rule on God's behalf. To the point to where the splendor and majesty of God are now used to describe this particular king. And yet, God and the king are clearly distinguished. They are not collapsed and no one is thinking this human king is the God that has blessed the king. Verse 4, And in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Now, this passage is a little bit controversial even among biblical Unitarian interpreters because there are some biblical Unitarians who cannot accept the fact that human beings can rightly be called God in certain circumstances. They think that is a threat to monotheism and nothing could be further from the truth. There are qualified human beings who are called God, the judges, Moses, and the Davidic king. And here's one example in which the Davidic king is rightly called God. He is called Elohim. And by calling this human king Elohim, we actually have a plural majesty word that's being used to describe a single individual. And so what we have in verse 6 and in verse 7, by the way, that part is usually ignored, is the human king addressed as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And we can see that the scepter of a brightness describes this particular person's kingdom. Some people think that it is the throne that is described as something that is adjectivally God, your divine throne. But I think this is a better reference to the king reference as God. And this is a lowercase g God, of course. This is the king qualified as God, functioning as the true God's representative. And of course, this subject who is called God has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And then in verse 7, it's interesting, we see that it says, Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. And so we have two references here. We have, therefore, God, in the vocative, continuing to address the subject, which is the king. And then it says, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So this human king has a God. That is quite clear. We've already noted that earlier in verse 2. But it would be strange to have Elohim functioning as a reference to the true God at the end of verse 7, but Elohim not functioning as a reference to a particular person in verse 6 and at the beginning of verse 7. It would be strange 
if based on the other interpretation that the throne is divine but Elohim would not be functioning as an adjective in reference to the true God. It's much more likely that as we've seen God has shared his attributes and his empowerment and his privileges and prerogatives with this king. God shares his might, his splendor, and his majesty. Of course, God shares his rule with this human king, so it's not surprising when we see God also sharing this particular title. So I think it's almost certain that it was intended that the psalm would be addressing the human king as God, but not in a way that threatens Jewish monotheism. It's a way of empowering a qualified human individual. Verse 8. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and acacia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. I want you to keep note of that language there of the aloes and the myrrh. We're going to see that again. Verse 9. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Again, we can see here this is a human king. The king has daughters. There are noble ladies. There is another queen. This is not a reference to Yahweh. And of course, this originally is not a reference to Jesus. This is a reference to the Davidic king. Many people thought that it referred to Solomon originally. Verse 10, listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. So here in verses 10 and 11, we can see that the bride of this particular king, because this is a wedding psalm, the bride is to regard the king as her Lord, and she's supposed to worship him. She's supposed to bow down to him. So this king can be called the Lord of other human beings, and he is worthy of worship. Again, not in a way that threatens the uniqueness of Israel's God or destroys monotheism. Verse 12, the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. I want you to keep note of that language, that the companions are being led forth with gladness and rejoicing. We will see that again. And to round off the psalm, verses 16 through 17, the palace of your fathers will be with your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. So there is thanks and thanksgiving offered to this particular king. And this act of giving thanks is supposed to perpetually last. So that's Psalm 45, which is a song sung towards the human king, towards the human monarch. And it's a wedding song. He is getting married. And the entire wedding procession is mentioned in this particular psalm 
And of course, the king is someone who is highly authorized and highly empowered by the one true God without being confused with the one true God. So it's not surprising that early Jews and early Christians would draw upon Psalm 45 in their understanding of Jesus. And that's exactly what we see in the Gospel of John. That moves us to our second point. Point number two, the use of Psalm 45 in the Gospel of John. Now, I've detected three places in which the Gospel of John seems to have been influenced by Psalm 45. And they aren't direct quotations. They seem to be allusions. And so you'll have to decide whether you think these allusions are actually persuasive. So the first one is in John chapter 3, verse 29. And this is the last sort of discussion that John the Baptist gives in regard to Jesus. One of the functions of the Gospel of John is that John the Baptist and his followers are trying to diminish the importance and value of John the Baptist as it compares to Jesus because there was some confusion regarding how important John the Baptist should be at the time of the writing of the Gospel of John for some interesting reasons which we don't have the time to get into right now. But John the Baptist talks about Jesus and describes him as the groom. And in doing so, he draws upon this language of Jesus functioning as the groom that was already laid as a seed earlier in chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana. But in John 3.29, John the Baptist says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. That's John 3.29. And you might be wondering where I'm going with this. What we have here is a friend, a companion of the groom who rejoices greatly, who has great joy that has been made full. And what we see in Psalm 45, verses 14 through 15, is that companions will be brought before the king and they will be led with gladness and rejoicing. And this language of gladness and rejoicing very, very closely resembles the Greek of John chapter 3, verse 29, to where here he is a companion of the king who has lots of joy and rejoicing. It's the same Greek range of these two particular words that is shared in the Septuagint version of Psalm 45 and of the Greek of John chapter 3, verse 29. So there are many scholars that see an allusion to Psalm 45 in John the Baptist's discussion here of Jesus as the groom. And that's very interesting. The next one, I think, is a little bit clearer when Jesus is being arrested in the garden in chapter 18, let's start in verse 4, it says, Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. 
and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. John 18, verses 4 through 6. And many scholars have identified the impact of Psalm 45, verse 5, which says that in regard to the human king, your arrows are sharp, the peoples fall under you. But not at the falling of actual arrows, but the falling of the words of this groom, of this king, of this human monarch, seem to be taking place here in John chapter 18. Jesus declares his identity, and they fall down. They fall down to the ground. Lastly, we can see after Jesus has died, in chapter 19, verse 39, that Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. That's John 19, verse 39. And the language here of myrrh and aloes is the only combination of these two phrases within the New Testament, but they also show up, yes, in Psalm 45, verse 8, which says that all your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes, using the same Greek words. So there seems to be three places in which the Gospel John has been influenced by Psalm 45, thereby regarding Psalm 45 as having a messianic interpretation. In doing so, it regards Jesus as a king who is a groom and who also is a human being who has been highly empowered by the true God. And that, of course, leads us to our third and final point, which is the use of Psalm 45 in the book of Hebrews. So while the Gospel of John doesn't offer explicit, clear citations, it gives these allusions, the book of Hebrews does offer a quote, a citation. It cites Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. And of course, this is the part to where the human king is called God, and it indicates that the God of this human king has anointed him because, as the king, he is the anointed one. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, it says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So again, we can see that this language of the Son, in which the Son is actually called God, and yet he has a God above him, has been drawn upon by the author of Hebrews to indicate the importance of the human being Jesus. And this is vitally important. And the author of Hebrews has maintained the fact that it is the Son who is called God. It is quite clear. It says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And of course, in verse 9, it continues to maintain the fact that this Son is called God. It says, therefore, God, referencing Jesus, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So Jesus has a God, 
above him. He's not confused with the God of Israel. He's not confused with the true God. But he has called God as God's empowered and authorized representative. And he's called God in the same way that the psalmist calls the human king God. Because as we saw in Psalm 45, it is perfectly acceptable for the God of Israel to empower qualified human beings to share in God's attributes, to share in God's power, to share in God's roles and privileges. And part of those include the reception of this title God, which is very, very important. So there you have it. We have Psalm 45 demonstrating that it is acceptable for human kings to be worshipped, to be the recipient of praise and song, and of course to be addressed with attributes that belong to the God of Israel. And the New Testament authors, particularly the Gospel of John and the author of the book of Hebrews, drew upon Psalm 45 in their depiction of Jesus as God's Messiah. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we look at Psalm 69 and the way in which this psalm influenced early Christian writers and their portrayal and understanding of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound, non-negotiable truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on iTunes and YouTube, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a financial donation, please check out this episode for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.